The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. High fly ball, way back in center field. It is out of here. A grand slam home run. And this one belongs to the Reds. UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. A comprehensive look at the Cleveland Indians and Cincinnati Reds. For the sixth consecutive season, we examine each team and their progress through the 2016 Major League Baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Good evening, evening, everyone, and welcome to to another edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Glad to have you along here this evening on tonight's show. And as we tell you what's happening all around the world of baseball, it's Time for us to go down south and talk to our resident Reds expert. As I introduce myself, I'm Dave Mitchell, and glad to have you along tonight on this Monday night show. Had a little kind of a technical difficulty there for a second, Mark, but now I think I've got it cleared up. But anyway, want to bring you in, Mark Donahue, from our resident Reds expert from down south. Yes, I do have it cleared up. So, Mark, boy, a lot of things going on this week, not only with the Indians, but also the Reds, Joey Votto's hot streak, Terry Francona, Francisco Mejia. But away from all of the baseball, have you been watching any of the Olympics? Yeah, I have. And uh, Usain Bolt last night, I don't know if you saw that. <clears throat> oh. I want, <clears throat> is there a sport he couldn't play? This guy is six foot five. He runs, you know, nine, six. 100 meter dash, not last night, but he's run up that fast. Uh, he's, I've never seen a guy cut like that. And the speed he has is just astonishing. What a, what a treat, uh, to see that guy perform. And I think anybody who's played sports looks at him and, and says that may be the best athlete that, uh, any of us have seen for a long time. Well, remember Bob Hayes, the former wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. That's where the Cowboys found him was on the track. That's right, and uh, but you know, Bullet Bob was uh, a little different body type and uh, very fast. But this guy, that that second fifty yards last night was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. He accelerated. Uh, I wonder what his fifty split was because he he passed like one of the fastest guys in the world, but he was standing still, and it's uh, it's incredible. Well, I know about fifty pounds ago I was that fast. Well, I heard that. I heard I heard the legend of Mitchell. Yes, uh, which but it's permeated down south here. So um, the, the but, disadvantage I had, Mark, was short legs. Well, that's uh, you are closer to the ground that way. So if you fall down, it doesn't, it doesn't take you long to get there. So they say. <laughs> anyway, boy, a lot going on this week in the baseball world as far as away from the Indians and the Reds. But a couple things about the Indians. You know, after we got off the air last Monday night, Mark, and the Indians went into Washington to play the Nationals on Tuesday night, boy, they had quite a scare with Terry Francona and his heart situation. A couple hours before the game on Tuesday evening, he was meeting with the media members in the dugout and complained that, he was feeling hot and flush, and he looked a little clammy, so he excused himself, went into the locker room to get a bottle of water, and as he was walking past the Indians trainer, the trainer said, why don't you just sit down here and let me check out your blood pressure and your heart rate, and his heart rate was above 100, his blood pressure was going through the ceiling, they laid him down on the trainer's table and took it again, and it was getting even faster. They decided to send him home on Tuesday, but in typical Francona fashion, on Wednesday for the 4 o'clock game that day, during the pregame interview, he told Tom Hamilton that he thought it was much ado about nothing. He went back to the hotel, got a good night's sleep, woke up the next morning, and he was perfectly fine. But, you know, Mark, the the way that this baseball season goes and the ebbs and flows and the pressures that managers find themselves under time and time again. I'm surprised this type of thing doesn't happen more often. I am too, particularly with managers. Uh, the stress they are under and, and the workload they, they carry, it is surprising that you know we haven't had a tragedy where a, uh, a manager has simply fallen over dead uh, like it did with the, with the umpire a few years ago. Uh, it can happen, and it does happen, so... You're right. I mean, the, the stress they are under is uh, is really amazing. 
Boy, I forgot about that umpire. What was his? He was a well-known umpire too. What was his name? Um, oh, I'll boy. think of it. I had it on the tip I, of my I, tongue. I will too. But that happened in Cincinnati. That's right. Opening day. On opening day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that was crazy in, in that that situation. But you know, I, I do I do complain a lot about some of the moves that Frank Kona makes, but. You know what, the, the managerial jobs that these guys do and the way that they constantly have to think on their feet, Mark, and and they they put themselves up for second-guessing all the time. Yeah, baseball is supposedly a non-stressful sport. But, you know, like I said, I'm surprised that this doesn't happen more often. You know, you see these managers time and time again, boy, they just get grayer and grayer as the years go along. Well, it's a thankless job because, you know, there, there's no empirical way to judge the value of a manager because every decision can be second-guessed. Uh, you can make all the right decisions throughout the year and make one wrong decision, uh, and all of a sudden you're um, viewed a, a bad manager because you make a, a bad decision in a big game. Uh, they can't be right all the time, and they go in their gut, and sometimes it doesn't work out. But because of that, it, it, it's certainly subject to second-guessing. And uh, that's what happens when you become a manager. That's, uh, you, that's part of the deal. Well, like we said, and as you probably already knew, Francona was back in the dugout the following day. It was a 4 o'clock game, and he was back in the dugout on Wednesday afternoon and has been in the dugout ever since then and managed the Indians not only do a four-game sweep over the Angels over the weekend, but also their 3-2 to two loss earlier this afternoon in a makeup game to the Boston Red Sox, which we'll talk about here in just a little bit. But the other thing I wanted to bring up before we get into the Reds here this evening, Mark, was the hitting streak by Indians catching prospect Francisco Mejia. Now, Mejia was the guy. He was the key ingredient in the Jonathan Lucroy trade that the Indians had made before the trade deadline three weeks ago, and then Lucroy, of course, declined the situation to go to, to Cleveland. And like we've said, Mark, a lot of times the best trades are the ones that don't happen, and this may be the one that turns out for the Indians. Mejia went 0 for 3 with a walk against high class A Lynchburg in their 6 nothing win over Winston Salem Dash, which is the White Sox minor league team. Now, the reason we bring that up, he had a 50-game hitting streak that was snapped in that game. 50 games, Mark. And, you know, we've seen baseball players throughout the years. You don't hear a lot about minor leaguers getting on a long hitting streak. But, of course, in Major League Baseball, the longest hitting streak was Joe DiMaggio's 56 games. Pete had 44 games a few years back and really flirted with it, but... You know, nobody has really come close to DiMaggio's 56 here. You've got Mejia at 50. And what makes it even more impressive, Mark, he's, he's a catcher. That is impressive. And <clears throat> you wonder if he has the capability of playing any other positions because you'd like to keep that young man healthy if he's that got that kind of bat. I don't know if he could play first or, or second even. I remember you know, Craig Biggio came up as a catcher. People forget and ended up at second base. So uh, when you have a bat like that, you want you want to keep him protected as much as you can. Do you know who has the longest hitting streak in minor league baseball history? Um, well, Joe DiMaggio was number two. Um, he had a 66-game hitting streak. Um, I do know that. I've forgotten. And he was he was also he, yeah that was number one 66. His number two he's also number two at 51. DiMaggio was number one? DiMaggio's number one at 66. Oh, I thought he was number two at 66. No, he's number one at 66. He's also number two at 51. He also had a third one at 46. Yeah, he he was... (laughs) The thing about it, you look at his strikeout rates, uh, just amazing how how infrequently he struck out. Uh, That's what people forget about he and Ted Williams. How would they do today, Mark? I mean, we we talk about this all the time. You know, we've talked about Babe Ruth, how he would do in Major League Baseball today. But, you know, those two guys, especially Musial, you put those three guys in the Major Leagues today, just how would they do? Well, obviously, they'd do fine. Would they have as much? uh, The the big thing they didn't face back then, there was two things. 
They didn't face the travel. I know that sounds like it, it does have an impact on a player. It does. They didn't have the travel that they have now. And number two, they didn't have the relief pitching that you face now. They didn't have Chapman's coming out of the bullpen throwing 105. So the pitching was, is much, much better now, which I mean, I think means you have to have to be a better hitter. Again, that is not something that you can prove empirically because it, it's over, in this case, you know, uh, 60, 70 years. But Ted Williams, I think, would have done it better than uh, Joe DiMaggio just because of the way they swung. Uh, but DiMaggio was a great, great hitter, and people forget what a great center fielder he was. And his injury was so easily fixed. He hit plantar fasciitis, and they couldn't, they couldn't fix it, and he got infected. Plantar fasciitis into this guy's career. He could have played another, you know, five, six, seven years. And again, he, in today's world, he could have DH'd. So the numbers he would have put up would have been stupid uh, with the kind of talent he had on a relative scale to when he played. But uh, don't over, don't underestimate the impact that relief pitching has had on baseball the last 25 years. It, it's really remarkable. You know, while you were answering that, another question popped into my head. Let's take all the baseball players prior to, let's say, 1970. Any baseball player you want prior to 1970. What baseball player prior to 1970 is the best suited? I guess this is the best way to ask this. Is the best suited, his game was best suited and fits the way baseball is played today. Well, it's there's a lot of variables there. That the, 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 the swing, I'm talking about a hitter right now, uh, the swing that comes to mind in terms of bat speed and power and the ability to transcend maybe any era would be Hank Aaron. Uh, Hank Aaron um, had such a quick, incredibly quick bat. And I remember shaking his hand once at a, at a, at a baseball function. And, he, you know, he's only 5'10". He's, he's a little guy comparatively. But his hand <laughs> looked like uh, it looked like Muhammad Ali's hand. It was just very, very strong, very, very powerful, and his wrist was bigger than my biceps. I mean, he had incredibly strong wrists. That kind of physical talent and his quick bat and the fact he could he could nobody could get a fastball by him. I think Hank Aaron would have would have been great in any era. And he, he did he did it with no weight. He didn't lift weights. He didn't do steroids. He just had an incredibly quick bat and very strong guy. So I, I think he would have would have been somebody that could have played any time. What, what's See, your I would, I would have taken Mickey Mantle prior to the injuries. Um, I thought Mickey Mantle, you know, with the speed, the capability of him to to steal bases when he was healthy and and hit with power. I just thought that his game transcended into. Uh, this, the way that they play baseball today. I mean, if you look at Mike Trout right now, he reminds me a lot of Mickey Mantle. Now, I only saw Mantle for about the last two or three years of his career, and by that time he was, he was pretty much washed up and injuries had taken their toll on his body. But when you look at Mike Trout, and I look at some of the pictures of Mickey Mantle back in his prime, boy, they're physically very, very similar. That's true, and if Trout were a left-hand, you know, a switch hitter, that'd be even more uh, to that. They even look alike facially. Uh, but uh, yeah, Mantle, you know, you look at some of these players that played back uh, before 1970. Uh, it's hard to imagine that Ernie Banks or Frank, well, Frank Robinson played, you know, from the 50s into the 80s. So he certainly was able to bring his talents forward over a long period of time. And um, I think Pete Rose. I mean, Pete Rose. Played before 1970, and uh, he, he'd be a great player today. He wouldn't be—he's he, not the the fast guy that people look for now. But uh, you know, there's a lot of players out there I think could have played uh, in the field um, from before 1970. What what I would question is how many of the pitchers could have made it. Uh, with the strength of the hitters today and, and the bat speeds and all that stuff. But, you know, people forget a lot of the great pitchers, like Robin Roberts, um, Don Drysdale. People thought Drysdale threw all that hard. He didn't throw hard, that hard compared to today. Uh, Sandy Koufax threw hard, but he, he, he couldn't last. But some of these guys were throwing, you know, 85, 88, 90 miles an hour, and they were they won 300 games. 
So what, what does that tell you about the hitters they were facing? Were the hitters inferior back then and that allowed those guys with that kind of physical stuff to make it to the Hall of Fame? I don't think there were a lot of pitchers back then that uh, you know could have cut the mustard in today's world. Many of them wouldn't get signed. They'd go to tryout camps. And <clears throat> some of these guys, still, like Robin Roberts, I, I took batting practice against him uh, when I was up in Philadelphia. And uh, you know, he wasn't going that hard, but, he, he, you know, he could tell. He, he could put something on the ball. But that guy wouldn't have made it. Uh, you know, he'd go to a tryout camp, and he wouldn't have made it because they would have been well, gauging his stuff. You know, and a lot of those pitchers back then, Mark, uh, it, it was nothing for them to throw 300 innings a year. Yeah. You don't. You, you know, it's hard to get a, a pitcher to throw 200 innings now. Yes, but that's why many of them, they didn't last very long, too. Some of these guys were, were gone. I remember I looked at Jim Maloney's no-hitter against the Cubs back in, I forget what it was, in, in the 60s, 69, I think. And he threw 186 pitches in one game. <laughs> he got a no-hitter, but, you know, and his career was over and he was 30. So a lot of these these guys wouldn't have survived in today's world because they wouldn't be allowed to go out there and throw that many pitches. And uh, I think with, with the, the cutter and the slider, and you know, what's happened to these, all the p- different kinds of pitches that these guys have mastered at a young age. I mean, some of these guys are throwing, uh, you know, sliders that are majorly quality when they're 16 years old. Mark, let, let's move into the Indians and the Reds a little bit further. The, uh, Dave, the Reds. Let me inter- interrupt you before I forget it. It, yes. was Harry, it was Harry Windlestadt who died. Ah. I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. No, it wasn't Harry Windlestadt. Wasn't it? Was John, um, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up right now while you, while you talk to us about what has gone on, what has gotten into Joey Votto. I mean, after the weekend, he went four for five on Saturday and boosted his, uh, batting average for the season up to 303 mark and with the start that he had I mean he was hitting as low as 216 at one point what has turned around his season mark other than he's just a great hitter that that's the the answer he is a great technical hitter he's one for two tonight so he's up to 305 and it's uh just some random stats here um, he began the season in April hitting under 200 and now he's up to 305. And since that time, uh, he's hit o- over 500 in the last, uh, I think the last 30 games, he's hit 505. And uh, it's just incredible. I mean, he's getting on base at a ridiculous percentage. Nobody can get him out. He just walked again tonight. He walked and singled. So people are finally learning that uh, you, you don't pitch to Joey Votto in, when he's in one of these streaks. And this guy could end up hitting 320 this year. It's not impossible given the start he had. But I've got a, I've got a, uh, you're always asking me questions. <laughs> Let me ask you one. Uh, there's a hitter that I, I think is very much like Joey Votto. And I want to know, we'll play a riddle game here. I want to know if you can figure out who this hitter is and if you agree that uh, this guy is pretty close to Joey Votto. Uh, he, this hitter I'm talking about is in the Hall of Fame. He's got over 3,000 hits, 3,154. He's got 665 doubles. He's got 137 triples. He's got 317 home runs, 50, almost 1,600 RBIs. Uh, and he's got a slugging percentage of three, or on base percentage of 369. Now, this guy's in the Hall of Fame, played 21 years. Tony Gwynn? No, but that's a good guess. That's a good guess. Um, right-hander or left-hander? He's a left-hand hitter. And let me, as you're, as you're musing over this, let me give you some other statistics. Joey Votto has, so far in his 10-year career, scored 728 runs. The player I'm talking about has just about twice that many and, and actually a little more than twice the number of games in, in the years played. Joey Votto has 1,344 hits so far. Our Hall of Famer has 3,154. 
Votto has 300 doubles. This guy's got 665. Votto already has 211 home runs. This guy had 317. Joey's on-base percentage is 424. Career, lifetime. And our Hall of Famer is 369. Joey is slugging at 532. Our Hall of Famer slugged at 434. Joey Votto, if he has the kind of career, it finishes up with the kind of numbers he has now, is going to surpass this Hall of Famer by a great deal. He's going to have a lot more home runs, he'll have more RBIs, probably have more hits. That's how, that's how good Joey Votto is. His last 30 games, as I said, on base percentage of 530. Batting average of 429 since the All-Star break. People in Cincinnati don't understand what they're seeing. This guy is arguably, and will be arguably, the greatest hitter in Reds history. And people kind of take it for granted. So I wanted people to know that while the team sucks, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're watching every day a player that could, not could, is most assuredly going to go to the Hall of Fame. And I'm not sure they appreciate it. If this guy was playing in New York or Chicago, <laughs> he would be an international legend. <laughs> so who do you think is – this guy's a left-hand hitter. He played for 21 years. He played in the American League. And I think is the hitter that most closely resembles Joey Votto in terms of the, his approach to the plate, his his contact, uh, the amount of contact he makes, and, and the statistics he's thrown up so far. See, there's there's two of them that I'm thinking of right off the top of my head. Um, originally, when you asked this question, I thought you might have been talking about Rod Carew, but it's not him. Um, Tony Oliva is one, and the other one is George Brett out of Kansas you, City. Very good. That's who it is, George Brett. Okay. <clears throat> I looked at numbers of the Hall of Famers that have played. Uh, I'm figuring Joey's going to play close to 20 years. And by the time he's done, he will pass up uh, George Brett in just about every category. But I remember how George Brett approached the plate. He seldom struck out, made a lot of contact. And I think he's the kind of guy that uh, Votto emulated in terms of maybe not meaningfully, but that's he reminds me of George Brett. So in terms of his career, I, I just hope Reds fans out there, when you have nothing else to cheer about, Understand that you're watching uh, an incredible talent play baseball, and he's a little strange. I'll give you that. Joey uh, has his own way of doing things, but what an incredible hitter this guy is. Mark, you know what? There's another player on the Reds that's playing some pretty good baseball since the second half of the season started, and that's Billy Hamilton. In 116 plate appearances, he's hitting 308 with a 379 on base percentage, is he slowly turning into what Reds fans, and especially you, thought he could be when he first became a major leaguer? I mean, he's not even 26 years old yet, Mark. Yeah, and I think I'm already seeing, I went down to a game a couple of weeks ago, and I saw him up close. I was up near the front, and I was only 20, 30 feet away from him. He is getting bigger. You know, his shoulders are getting bigger, and I was impressed by his arms. He's got muscular arms. Apparently, he's in the weight room a lot. He's been working with Joey Votto a lot. He's got that karate chop swing. He doesn't have that long, full swing he had when he came up three years ago. He's really shortened and compacted that swing, and he's making very good contact. Now, his defense has been actually the best. In, I don't know of a better defensive center fielder right now in baseball. He just He just runs down everything. He got hurt tonight. I don't know if you saw that. He ran into the center field fence, made a, a great catch. Didn't come out of the game immediately, but he came out after uh, two more innings. So I hope it's nothing serious. But uh, he has been playing terrific ball. This guy has a chance to steal 75, 80 bases this year. If he, if he continues to get on base, he most certainly will. But it, I tell you what, if he can hit 265, 270, uh, he could be a perennial all-star for this team. In other words, what you're saying is he's finally taking the advice that Pete Rose gave him, not this past spring training, but a spring training a year ago, that he should just concentrate on hitting the ball on the ground. 
Well, sure. I mean, that's, you know, uh, yeah, that that is true. Everybody's been telling him that, but uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me. But I would bet that his percentage of fly balls has dropped precipitously this year. He's hitting the ball on the ground. He's hitting line drives. He's pulling the ball. Uh, he's pulling some pretty good fastballs. So I, I've been impressed with his uh, his ability to get on base this year. And, if, you know, he, he just passed 300 on base percentage, I think, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And if he can if he could be in the 3, 325 on base percentage, uh, he's a real weapon. And the Reds, you know, get a couple more bats in that lineup next year. They could, they could do some damage. Well, how about the fact that they, they sent Cody Reed down to the minors today? They sent him down to Louisville. They brought up Kyle Waldrop. You know, Waldrop's one of those guys, Mark, that, boy, if he had an elevator coming up and down between Louisville and Cincinnati, he'd make a fortune if he had, he invested in some sort of an elevator type of investment. But uh he's back on the 25-man roster. Reed really had problems while he was up here, didn't he? He sure did. I saw him pitch yesterday, and again, you hate to rely on the radar gun as your only criteria, but his his fastball is not only not that fast, but it's straight. He doesn't have a lot of movement on it. His his his, his slider, he hangs it over the plate, and clearly the kid was not ready to be brought up. And I I hate to see this happen to him. Uh, you know, the, the minor league season ends in two weeks. They end September 1st. So I don't know what the Reds are going to do with him. They bring him back up or just uh, say, hey, go home for the winter and, and think about it. But he's 0-7. He's got a 7.5 ERA. And even the outs, every 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 pitch he throws, they're, they're teeing up on it. And you hate to see that, but uh, he certainly isn't what everybody expected him to be. 67 hits he's allowed, Mark, in just under 48 innings, 47 and two-thirds innings. That includes 19 walks and 12 home runs. He has not been able to really spot his fastball anywhere in a good location. Do they have his whip there? No, they don't. It's got to be, how many hits did he give up? He gave up 67 in 47 and two-thirds innings. So it's 79 um, walks and hits. And how many innings? Uh, 19 walks, 12, 12 homers, uh, 67 hits in 47 and two-thirds innings. Oh, my God. That's uh, that's almost a two-whip. That means he's giving up almost two base runners uh, every inning. <laughs> yeah. That, that's not good, Dave. That's not no. good. No. No. And an- another pitcher that has been having a tough time giving up a lot of hits lately is Josh Tomlin for the Indians. But the hits that he's been giving up, Mark – have been home runs. He gave up one today, a two-run shot to David Ortiz, his 27th of the year, and the Indians lost 3-2 to two this afternoon, breaking their four-game winning streak. Tomlin now leads the major league mark with 29 home runs allowed, which is at a rate of 1.9 homers per nine innings. But the strange stat about that is, of the 29 that he's given up this year, 21 are solo shots. You know, that's a guy who's around the plate. You know, guys who are around the plate, like Bronson Arroyo would do that. He would give up a ton of home runs, but most of them are with, with nobody on base, and that's because he, they throw a lot of strikes. But, you know, I, I remember at the right after the All-Star break, um, I asked you, in fact, I asked you this about every two weeks, are you worried? Am I worried about the Indians now? Yeah, yeah. No, not now. Okay. Um, I was I was about a week or so ago when Detroit had cut it, to two games, but then the Indians extended the lead out to five. They've actually got uh, a six-game lead in the loss column. Um, they've lost only once to Detroit this year. They've got eight games left. Uh, no, I'm sorry, nine games left. Uh, is it nine? No, wait. They've only got six games left with Detroit. I'm sorry. They've only got six games left with Detroit. So, I mean, if they finish 500 against Detroit, they still win the division. Um, I, no, I'm not worried any longer. Salazar comes back on Thursday. They said the prognosis on his elbow was that there is no structural damage. Uh, they gave him a cortisone shot to relieve the, the inflammation, and they said that he's bounced back extremely well over what 
they had anticipated, and they're so pleased with the way that he's recovered, they're going to make him uh, go into a start on this Thursday, take him off the DL, and put him into the back into the rotation against the Chicago White Sox. So no, uh, am I worried now? No, but that being said, there were a couple of guys this week that were designated for assignment that I think are interesting possible pickups for the Indians. And I want to bring that to your attention. The first one is Carlos Gomez. Carlos Gomez was released by Colorado. You know, two years ago, Mark, he was the darling of Major League Baseball. He was one of those guys that everybody wanted. And I think he's just a product. I was talking with Greg Mitchell about this uh, earlier this weekend. I think he was a product of maybe all these trade rumors finally got the best of him because he's been, every time you talk to Colorado, boy, Carlos Gomez was the guy that you wanted. He was it. And, you know, I think maybe he is a prime candidate for a change of scenery. What do you think? Yeah, his his stats when he first came up. You're right. He was a, he was a rising star, and you wonder if there, if it's more than just uh, physical with him. Uh, you know what has gone wrong with his confidence, and, and why why would they release a guy like that um, after really only what two two bad years? I mean, uh, Jay Bruce had two bad years, and the Reds kept him and ended up trading him, but. Uh, you just wonder something, you know, behind the scenes there. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you've got you've got people all over the place. I mean, he ends up going to Houston. He he totally lost it in Houston too. But there's something about Houston, Mark. Now, you know, Kobe Rasmus, who was, you know, really a guy with a rising star in St. Louis. They trade him to Toronto, and he can't do anything. He bounced around a couple of places, ends up in Houston, and he's become a star. But how many players have actually been traded to Houston, Mark, over the years, and it's been a dead-end stop for them? You wonder if that short left-field fence uh, makes guys start yanking the ball. Uh, A lot of guys who used to go to uh, Yankee Stadium, left-hand hitters, it would happen to them. They see that short porch, and they they change their swing and try and, and pull everything, and uh, you know that something like that can impact a hitter. Believe me. You know, I would like to see the Indians take a shot on him. Now, there was an article on Bleacher Report earlier today that brought it up. Now, you know, Gomez right now he was hitting just two ten this year. Uh, basically, he had an abysmal, you understand this better than I do because I don't keep track of war and whips and everything else. He had an abysmal negative 0.6 war through 85 games. That's I'm, I'm figuring that's pretty bad. Yeah, this was a guy, well, you know, his, his big uh, claim to fame came with Milwaukee when he was with the, with the Brewers. And he had some big years there. You know, he, he he never was, I don't think he was an all-star, maybe he was. But I remember one year he hit in the 280s, 290s. In fact, I think there was, I remember back-to-back years he hit something like 285 or something like that in back-to-back years. I mean, that, that's solid. Uh, he stole bases, he got on base, he, uh, he drove in runs, and, and he beat the Reds many times. Uh, he had 19, 20, 25 home runs for several years in a row. So, when a guy falls off the cliff like that, uh, it's hard to imagine that uh, there's not something else there. It, it's he c- certainly has the physical skills. He's only he's what thirty years 30 old. Thirty years old. Yeah. So th- there's something wrong. Uh, you just wonder who would take a, a, a chance on him. But I remember him being kind of a flake um, when he played for Milwaukee. Just kind of a. I remember he got into a couple of fights and, and that kind of thing. So, again, who knows? Uh, there may be um, something we don't know. Um, and um, Well, here's, a, think, here's some teams that Bleacher Report says would probably be a good fit. The Chicago White Sox, San Francisco Giants. I'm not quite sure why they think the Giants would be a good fit for him. The Seattle Mariners, 
are another one. Miami, now that they've lost Giancarlo Stanton, we'll get into that here in a little bit. The Detroit Tigers, they just lost Cameron Mabin, so maybe they would be interested in Gomez. And the New York Mets, of course, they seem to be interested in just about everybody. And the St. Louis Cardinals, which I, I think that's a strange one. The Cardinals, he just doesn't seem to me to fit into what they have, especially when they've got Grychik playing center field and playing that position so well for them. You know, I, I look at it, Mark, and I if I was the Indians, especially since Michael Brantley is gone for the year now, uh, after undergoing shoulder surgery again today, uh, he's done for the year. They, they've wiped him off the map. I would almost take a look at this guy, bring him in. Another guy I would bring to the table, Mark, is Jonathan Papelbon. Oh, now, on God. the surface, that sounds crazy. Yes, it does. Except... <laughs> Remember when he had his best years with Boston and who the manager was? It was yeah, Terry the Francona. It's not going to help a guy throwing an 85 mile an hour fastball uh, as, a, as a reliever. Uh, was he throwing an 85 mile an hour fastball because he's physically incapable of throwing it any faster now, or was he throwing it because he was fed up with the Washington organization over going out and getting Melanson? Well, I don't know why that would have any impact on a professional baseball player. Uh, he was getting <laughs> hammered before they got Melanson. That's why they got him. He was getting hammered. He had like a 9 ERA over the last month and a half before they, they got Melanson. And if he's that unprofessional, I would kick his butt off the team anyway. If he's going to go out there and you know lob up 85 mile an hour fastballs, I think he's toast physically. Uh, I thought he was a head case. I didn't. I never liked the guy. I haven't liked him either, but I am so discouraged with the Indians' bullpen after the four guys that they use constantly. And Tom Hamilton made the uh, made the comment earlier today during the Indians' afternoon game with Boston when they brought in Zach McAllister to pitch the ninth inning. McAllister immediately down three to two, gave up a single and a double. So he's got runners at second and third and nobody out. Now, he eventually pitched out of it. But when he gave up those two hits, Tom Hamilton made the comment, you know, hey, the Indians have to use some other relievers other than the four that they're using, and Othero, Miller, Shaw, and and Cody Allen. And that means McAllister's got to get his butt in gear. You know, they've got other guys that have to get their butt in gear. And the thing about it is, Mark, if they can bring in Papelbon and he can spot an inning here or there, Maybe get his head screwed on straight. I'm not asking him to close games, but if he could get an out here or there, it would help that entire bullpen out. It's you just know, something that they could look at. Well, I don't think he can help anybody, but uh, that's just uh, one man's opinion in Southern Ohio. But uh, you mentioned uh, the Mets interested in anybody, and just as an aside, um, you know, I've always been a Jay Bruce fan, uh, and I want to look at what he's hitting so far for the Mets. I don't know if you've been following it at all. And it's a, it's a very, very small sample size. He's only had 50 plate appearances uh, in 12 games, but he's hitting 152. Uh, he's got five base on balls, only five RBIs, two home runs. Only got seven hits uh, in 12 games. So I'm wondering what Met fans are um, thinking about that trade where the Reds got a very, very good second baseman uh, that the Mets had penciled in for their starting second baseman next year. And, you know, Jay Bruce is probably not used to the kind of fan abuse that he would be susceptible to in New York. He never he never got that in Cincinnati. So, uh, yeah, hope for better things for him. But, uh, you know, the Reds uh, may have made a good deal here. Who knows? Is anyone ever used, ever prepared for the type of fan abuse that you get in New York? Well, unless you're playing Philadelphia, uh, yeah, you should <laughs> be prepared. But, uh, you know, that's... Um, Remember, that's even Reggie story, Jackson went there and I think underwent shell shock. That's right. That's at first. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he just, he really had a problem. But, you know, we talked earlier about Giancarlo Stanton going down from Miami. Miami was not really a threat to Washington to win the National League East. But Miami was playing good baseball and was in the hunt for a wild card spot. But now this injury to Stanton really puts a monkey wrench in Don Mattingly's plans for the rest of the year. 
Yeah, it does. And uh, you're right; they weren't going to catch uh, Washington, but uh, there's certainly a player in the in the wild card. And uh, they're leading the Reds tonight, four to two, and uh, you know they'll probably win at least two or th- maybe all three of these games against the Reds. So they're going to be there, but they've got to do something with that middle of the lineup. But I was surprised to see that Stanton was only hitting two forty four. Uh, he had twenty five home runs, uh, but two forty four is not a great batting average for a guy you're paying twenty five million dollars a year to. I'm telling you, somebody is going to look at Joey Votto and. Uh, he he could be such a game changer for for a team, and really be a game changer for the Reds. I don't want the Reds to trade Joey Votto. I don't. I want to see him play for the next ten years. But uh, you look at his contract, and it all of a sudden—not all of a sudden—but as time goes on, it's no longer an outlier in terms of contracts. Uh, he's probably making less money than Stanton, as an example. Uh, so you have a guy who's going to be a career three hundred hitter. I wonder what the Reds could get for a package of Joey Votto and Homer Bailey. Uh, a Rod. <laughs> yeah, speaking of A Rod for that. <laughs> speaking of A Rod, you know, uh, as soon as Stanton, it was announced that he was out for the year. A lot of rumors arose out of Miami. Of course, that's where A Rod lives. Is down in Miami. That's where he got in trouble. Was down in Miami. So where did it come from? Miami, that the Marlins would be interested in picking up A-Rod to take the spot of Giancarlo Stanton. But then, after that happened, not only after the questions of where A-Rod would actually play, that that's a big question because he'd have to move into the National League, but his agent came right out and said, nope, 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 there will be nothing doing with A-Rod playing any more baseball anywhere the rest of this season. Next year's wide open according to the agent. But this year, nope, he's going to sit at home and he's going to rake in the millions and millions to just enjoy his afternoons. Yeah, and I can't blame him for that. I'm surprised. I mean, I, I do think a guy like A-Rod, if he were a full-time DH, he, you know, he, he was getting 500 at-bats in a year, uh, I think he could still hit, be productive. Uh, he, he can't play defense. I mean, maybe he could play first, but... Uh, even that, you're going to need a lot of agility, and, and he doesn't he doesn't have that anymore. But people forget, you know, all, all they think about when they hear A Rod's name are are the the drugs or the the steroids. People forget this guy was probably one of the top ten most gifted baseball players in history. I saw him playing when he was 18 years old down in Florida, and he, I, he looked like he was ready for the big leagues when he was 17 years old. I mean, he, he was that good. He could hit a home run just about any time he wanted, and he didn't disappoint. I mean, the guy, I hope he comes back and, you know, what's he have, 696 home runs? Um, yes. I hope he comes back and, and goes for 700. I think he could, I think he could get it. Um, but uh, he's, he's had a great career. It's unfortunate what happened to him, and he just got bad advice. He just, he really did. Now, that does not mitigate the fact that I've heard he's an absolute jerk, uh, besides that, but uh, uh, in terms of just raw baseball talent, uh, there there have not been many. You know, you, you look at Seattle, what they had at one time. I mean, uh, they had A. Rod and Ken Griffey Jr. at the same time in their primes. I mean, incredible. And Randy team. Johnson. And Randy Johnson and Ichiro. Uh, you know, no wonder that team won as many games as they did. And Lou Pinella as manager. That's right. Yeah, I mean they they had some outstanding ball players up in the northwest part of this country playing baseball, and like you said, boy, they you know that one year they won 115 games. Yeah, and, and Martinez, and I mean you go up and down that lineup, they they were just loaded. Jay Bruner, Bruner, uh, uh, my gosh, what, what you know team. Edgar Martinez, Mark is a guy I think is widely overlooked, especially oh, by. The Hall of Fame voters. He he deserves to be in. I agree with you. And again, had he played in New York or played in Chicago, he'd be in. But he played in Seattle, and nobody ever saw him play. And he was he was one of the great great hitters of all time. That guy he could, he could really rake. And uh, you know you hope he, a guy like that gets a chance to to get the recognition he deserves. Here's the thing about A Rod though. He's going to get hit with a double whammy when it comes to Hall of Fame votes. 
And the first one, of course, is going to be the steroids. They're not going to vote for him because of that. The second reason is, is just simply because he's going to sit back and he's going to rake in these millions of dollars for not playing baseball, and they're going to say it's all his fault. When you know what? The Yankees didn't have to, and they signed him to that contract. The, the well, Yankees bear a majority of the responsibility for the way that this thing was went down. Well, go back further than that. You know, Texas is the one who signed him to the original uh, $200 million contract. And that thing just kept being perpetuated wherever he went. But, uh, you know, when he, when he left Seattle for Texas and, and then it inevitably the only place they really could afford him was New York, uh, they got, they got him on a discount. They, they, Texas threw money into that deal when he went to New York. <clears throat> well, remember Boston wanted him originally mm-hmm. and he had, he had agreed to renegotiate his contract and take less money. So Boston could take him in, and the union wouldn't allow it. I remember that. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so he he ended up going to New York, and then New York ended up signing him to a contract extension that that made this. But could the Yankee front office and management, Mark, have handled the last week with A. Rod any worse? No, and not only that, <laughs> but the weather even impacted it last Friday night, and it rained, and he didn't get his due, and. Uh, yeah, I, I think they really screwed up. And you know, I, I don't really know what Yankee fans think of him. Uh, you know, I don't think Yankee fans know what Yankee fans think of him. Yeah, it's it, they say New York is the place for second chances, and that may be true. And you know, by all accounts, A. Rod was a good citizen in New York. He didn't cause any problems, and uh, he paid his he paid his price. And I don't think he should be judged more harshly than anybody else who's, who's been caught using the juice. But, uh, you know, what is – somebody is going to – and I think it's going to be Barry Bonds. I think Barry Bonds will sue Major League Baseball because he didn't – he was never convicted of anything. It never been proved. And they're just – you know, they just assume he's lying. And he may be. But when you don't have any proof and you keep a guy like that out of the Hall of Fame, uh, somebody's going to sue Major League Baseball and they're going to win. Well, I, I would love to see that, but I would like to see also how he would do it. Sure, I mean you could find you can find an attorney to sue on just about anything. Look at how many lawsuits Donald Trump has brought to the table. So you can find an attorney that'll sue on anything. But when you're asking, you know, an attorney to go in and sue uh, Major League Baseball over the the fact that you can't be put into the Hall of Fame, yeah, I agree with you, Mark. I I think maybe he's got a leg to stand on, but. Boy, that'd be a tough case to really prove. Well, now that he's with the Marvins and he's back in Major League Baseball, that might, uh, you know, stop him from doing that. But he, he certainly has a case uh, to be made for himself that, uh, hey, guys, you're not letting me in the Hall of Fame. Clearly, I deserve it. Why are you being presidential to me? So uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, if that were to be the case, then you'd have a bunch of guys lining up saying the same thing. Mark, before the All-Star break, the San Francisco Giants looked like they were going to run away with the Western Division in the National League. They had an eight-and-a-half game lead over the Dodgers, and the Dodgers now have cut that down to one. And they've done it without Clayton Kershaw and Yasiel Puig. How have they done it? Well, I think they're a better clubhouse now without Puig, and I think some of the young pitching they have, they got an opportunity, and they stepped up. But I saw Kershaw warming up yesterday. He's back. I mean, he'll be back soon. And uh, the Dodgers are a scary team. I mean, you look at that that lineup. You look at the the pitching staff, the bullpen. Uh, they don't have a lot of weaknesses on that team. And that that's that's the kind of team you don't want to play going into the playoffs. And um, I think the Giants will probably make the playoffs, and they're always tough in the playoffs. And maybe in a couple of weeks we'll start looking at that more carefully about those teams that are going to be in the playoffs and, and their chances of winning it. But I, I, I'm not just saying this because we're talking about the Indians and the Reds. I think the Indians have as good a chance as anybody to win the World Series with that pitching staff. And I, I wish they had gone out and got another hitter. Um, and if they got LaCroix, I think that would have been a difference maker. 
But even without that, uh, that's a pretty – I mean, they're playing without Brantley, for gosh sake. Uh, if they had him, that would have been the hitter they needed. Yeah, and, you know, I, I mentioned last week, Mark, when we, we had the show last week, that I thought the Indians had pretty much given up on the idea of Michael Brantley coming back this year. And as it turns out, a few days later, they came out and said, nope, he's done. He'll have surgery on Monday, which was today to take care of the scar tissue and everything that's in his right shoulder. It's not in his throwing shoulder. It's in his right shoulder. Now, I had never really been involved with a torn labrum, Mark, when it comes to a baseball player, up until the last couple of years. And one of the players, Shane Weaver, that played with Waynedale, had a torn labrum in his right shoulder, which is also his throwing shoulder. From what I understand, I never saw this kid pitch, but he evidently had a heck of a fastball, but he did not want to undergo surgery because doctors will come right out and say, when you've got a torn labrum and you actually cut into it, it's 50-50 as to whether it will actually heal correctly. I never knew that. Me I, I know I've, I've I'd heard football players have torn labrums before, and... You know, I mean, basically, they're they're not using their arms to throw. They're using to block or to catch. You know, if you've got a quarterback, obviously, but you don't hear a lot about a quarterback having a torn labrum. A baseball player with a torn labrum, that must be a very devastating injury because this kid was relegated to first base and, and really could not throw the ball very far with an unsurgically repaired uh, torn labrum. So, you know, when I found out that Michael Brantley had a torn labrum, I half expected back in spring training this would be a year-long problem. Well, hopefully he'll be ready for spring training next year, but, uh, you know, when you're that age and not able to play an entire year, like Devin Maserato has gone through for two years in a row, it's certainly something that... Uh, um, players uh, don't relish, and then the rehab is awful, and so it, it's not a not a good thing. No, no, it, it's not. And like I said, it must be a very tricky injury to try to overcome. Mark that umpire, John McSherry. That's who it is. John, he he died at age fifty-one back in uh, April first of ninety-six. Now, I, I, I had the answer for you, but I also have to give. Give kudos out to Linda Jordan, who emailed me and gave me the answer to that also. You know, that Linda Jordan, what what a pest. Isn't I mean, she's always second-guessing us. Well, she's our us. favorite stock, I mean, fan. Yes, that's right. And and I want to yeah. say a shout-out to her and her best friend, Mike Wolf. Uh, I think Mike is also listening to our broadcast tonight down in Houston. And so uh, I know those two are friends. And uh, But uh, thank Linda for correcting our papers. Well, I, I will say this about Linda. She did send me a nice birthday card today. What? On, on email. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, she, she is sucking you, you know. She is sucking up. <laughs> and and she's doing a fine job of it. I will say, I will say that, you know. But um, anyway, uh, off that subject, you know, there there was some talk with the Angels in town over the weekend, Mark, and and the Indians announcers were talking about Mike Trout. And Rick Manning made the comment, and I wanted to bring it up on tonight's show. Major League Baseball does not do a very good job. And I th I think it's good. In my eyes, I think it's good that they don't do this. Individualizing players like the NFL and the NBA do. I mean, you know, they've gone away. Those two sports have gone away from the team aspect and they individualize players. Major League Baseball likes to stick with the teams rather than the players. That being said, is Mike Trout the face of Major League Baseball right now? I think he would be if he was playing on a better team. And uh, that, that may sound like a simplistic response to it, but again, even though he's playing in Los Angeles, that team has been so underperforming. Uh, the last several years that if Mike Trout were in a bigger market with a better team and so many times, um, you know, 
players get into an environment where the team is not good. They could be very good. But, again, imagine, you know, Boston, when they had Ted Williams, they never won. They never won a World Series. Imagine had he played for the New York Yankees. I mean, the numbers he would have put up would have been astonishing. Uh, had he played for the Dodgers, uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers even, uh, in, in a big market like that. But timing is everything, and, and I think Mike Trout, and he's a free agent, I believe, after this year, certainly after next year, one or the other. Uh, he, he's going to command a contract that is going to be ungodly. But who will take a chance on a player and pay him uh, probably 250 to $300 million over 10 years? That's what he's worth. Well, and, and, you know, the only other player, I think, Mark, that you could bring up that could compete against him right now would be Harper. Oh, I don't think Harper... I think he's overrated. I really do. Uh, his what's he hitting? Two forty this year, and uh, his they figured out his swing. Now, he, if he adjusts, and, and a good hitter will, he'll come back and have another good year. But uh, he's his swing. Uh, a good pitcher can get him out. You can you can pitch to Bryce Harper, uh, Mike Trout. I don't know what you do with him. I mean, you you can't you can't pull him. You throw him a fastball, the inner half, he'll pull it. Outside corner, he'll go to right field. He's great defensively. Uh, runs the bases well. I mean, he, he's really the, the entire package. But where, even the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers, and that, that's probably where he'll go uh, into one of those teams, how can you afford a guy like that? Well, here's the thing. I, I thought he had signed a new contract, and he had. Uh, a year ago, he signed a six-year, $144 million contract with the Angels that that just began this year. So after this year, he's got another five years with the Angels. No, but I think I think he's got an opt out in that. Uh, and um, well, if he does, it's not on this article. Well, I heard I heard him talking about this on ESPN the other night. In fact, I was in the car driving back from Florida, and they were talking about some kind of out he's got, and what would he command on the open market. So I don't, I don't know if it's. You know his option or their option or mutual option or whatever. Oh, I think it would, he would definitely be the main target of the Yankees. No oh, doubt. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right, um, and and that's where I think Vado is going to end up. Um, Yankees or Boston. I mean, when Big Poppy leaves, they're going to need a first baseman, and Vado would. <laughs> he, the numbers he put up at that ballpark are insane. Mark, the Little League World Series begins Thursday. In Williamsport, are you going to be keeping an eye on that, especially the pitch count with some of these pitchers? Yeah, I will. Uh, I talked to I talked to a, a little league pitcher, uh, a little league manager, um, just a couple of weeks ago, a guy who um, I've known for a number of years, and we were talking about. And in fact, I, I mentioned to him that you had brought up on the air that uh, a high school coach let a pitcher go out and throw an ungodly number of pitches, and he said that there is a rule coming out of Ohio. That would limit that, and he's all for it. He said, uh, "You know, you some of these managers are just insane. You know, they they let the kids go out there, and they're 17 years old, and they're throwing uh, 120 pitches in a in a game. They take two days off, and they throw 130. It's just it's it's just insane. That the man, the coaches and managers ought to be fired. Yeah, that that was." And, and yeah, we had talked about that that night that they were, the OHSAA was going to implement that, that rule. Mark, do you know what happened on this day in baseball in 1993? Hmm, 1993. Um, no, this is about baseball, right? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. No, David, I don't. Won his 324th and last victory of his 27-year career with the Rangers when he beat the Indians at Old Municipal Stadium six to four, and I was there. Wow! He was 46 at the time. Was it his next start that he blew out his arm and never pitched again? Next start, blew out his arm. Jeez. Yep, and never never came back. That that was it for him. He was he was done. Mark, what do the Reds have coming up the rest of this week? 
Well, they got uh, four games against the Marlins, uh, and then they—I don't know what they have coming in this weekend, Dave. I don't. The think Dodgers this weekend. That's right. The Dodgers come in, and uh, by the way, speaking of the Dodgers, quickly, uh, there has been some talk that the Reds are still interested in Puig, and uh, I don't know why. I hope they don't sign <laughs> him, but uh, I think the Dodgers are sniffing around Homer Bailey the way he pitched the other day. Boy, yeah, he did have a good game. Eleven strikeouts, just one under his career high. He's thrown the ball well since coming back. The Indians this week, they've got the Chicago White Sox tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Toronto coming to town this weekend for Friday, Saturday, and a Sunday afternoon game. Mark, we'll talk to you again next Monday night at 9 o'clock. You have a good one. Goodbye, Mike and Linda. You you too. (laughs) That's going to do it for our show for tonight. Don't forget, coming up a week from this Friday, August 26th, we will be back with high school football for you here on UltimateSportsTalk.com as Waynedale will be at Tusky Valley. And that begins our season of high school athletics here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. We'll be on the air at 6 o'clock with Golden Bear Rewind to start the season on Friday night, August 26th. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show. Our thanks to Mark Donahue. But most of all, our thanks to you for listening here tonight. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Monday night at 9 o'clock with another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Good night, everybody. The Wiz Kids have won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial.